Hello you and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we're talking about The Devil Wears Prada. We're talking about it with our great friend, Eve Lindley. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I'll soon be joined by my tremendous co-host, Sarah Marshall. The Devil Wears Prada, of course, is a 2006 American comedy drama film. It's an adaptation of the novel of the same name. It stars Meryl Streep as Miranda Priestly, a powerful fashion magazine editor, and Anne Hathaway as Andrea Andy Sachs, a college graduate who goes to New York City and lands a job as Priestley's co-assistant. Emily Blunt and Stanley Tucci co-star as well. And we are talking about The Devil Wears Prada with Eve Lindley, who is a friend of ours, is a friend of Sarah's and mine. Uh, Eve is an actress, has been in a number of things that you may have seen, such as the television series Dispatches from Elsewhere and All We Had. Eve was in Mr. Robot for a stretch. Eve was in the movie Bros. Eve, I should also note, will very soon be on a bonus episode of You're Wrong About discussing folks' attitudes toward Anne Hathaway and how that attitude has evolved over the years. So look out for that. It's a perfect companion piece uh, to our conversation about this movie. Speaking of You're Wrong About, there is a You're Wrong About live stream coming up soon, uh, February 14th, 2023, a Valentine's Day a-go-go. Jamie Loftus will be Sarah's guest. That will be incredible. Carolyn will be performing some music. I'll be working behind the scenes. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. If you want to have uh, an hour, hour and a half, maybe more of Sarah, Jamie, and Carolyn, that is something to keep your eye out for. Stay tuned accordingly. And speaking of bonus episodes, You Are Good is made possible with and by your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions. We appreciate you. You make the whole thing possible. You get us authors and uh, journalists and musicians and uh, the creative types. You get us uh, employment. We appreciate that. Thanks for helping to make this our job. We appreciate you. In exchange for doing that, you get bonus episodes. We have a sprawling bonus episode coming to you this month, the month of January. It is about the movies The Menu and about Megan or Mithrigan, as Sarah calls it. Uh, It was a fun one. All right. One more thing before we get into the episode proper. I want to let you know about American Masters Creative Spark. When you're watching a movie, The same question comes up again and again with each stunning shot or brilliant edit. You are probably asking yourself, how do they do it? And then how can I do the same? This is really applicable to my life because the very first thing I ever wanted to do was to make movies. I wanted to make special effects, makeup. I wanted to make people look gross. And then I found out someone else was in charge and I wanted to direct and I wanted to write all. This is all stuff I've been fascinated with with and about since uh, I was a wee lad. So if you have questions like that when you watch movies or you have similar questions when you listen to great music or read fantastic books, it's well worth checking out American Masters Creative Spark, the award-winning podcast from PBS that illuminates the creative journeys of icons across disciplines from film to comedy to poetry to music. Again, extremely my stuff. 
American Masters Creative Spark just kicked off a new season. Its second episode is a great interview with one of our all-time favorite filmmakers, the legendary Pope of Trash, John Waters. He talks about good taste, bad taste, and the writing of his novel, Liar Mouth. Whether you want to nerd out about an old classic, discover a new favorite, or find inspiration for your own creative journey, this is the podcast for you. Follow American Masters Creative Spark on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, and tell them that I, Alex Steed of You Are Good, sent you. Hey, speaking of Apple Podcasts, have you left a five-star review for us if you like the show and said some words about why you like the show? That really helps us out. Anyway, let's get into it. Let's talk about this fine, fine feature, The Devil Wears Prada, and let's talk about it with our great friend, Evelyn Lee. Don't forget that you, my friend, are good. You know, it's just the both those belts look exactly the same to me. You know, I'm still learning about this stuff and uh, <laughs> this stuff. Oh, okay. I see. You think this has nothing to do with you? You go to your closet and you select I don't know that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back, but what you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue, it's not turquoise, it's not lapis, it's actually cerulean. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns, and then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets? I think we need a jacket here. Mm. And then Cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact, you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. And tell them for the 40th time, no, I don't want dacquoise. I want torts with warm rhubarb compote. Beautiful. I can't believe she had to tell that woman 39 times that she doesn't want dacquoise. <laughs> she gives simple direct instructions. What are we covering? What are you quoting, Sarah Marshall? We're talking about The Devil Wears Prada, and in a sense, I feel like my whole life has been leading to this moment. <laughs> Guest, please announce yourself and tell us why you are best qualified for discussing The Devil Wears Prada. Hi, uh, my name is Eve Lindley, and I'm an actress and a fashion school dropout. <laughs> <laughs> no graduation day for you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I know this movie basically beat for beat. It's one of those films that I watch anytime I feel something 
kind of good or bad. It just <laughs> makes me feel like me. Yeah. Sarah, what is your history with this movie and what is this movie? So I remember seeing this movie when it came out. It was the summer of 2006. I had just graduated high school. We still had an apparently functioning economy, uh, which is hard to remember now, because now whenever I see a piece of shitty mid to late 2000s fashion, I think of the Great Recession. But this is a pre-recession movie, which is incredible. It's about the strength of a magazine. Yeah, it's true. This is like one of the last moments of like legacy media and having like a... Sylvia Plath summer, if you will, <laughs> having a big old bell jar. And so this is an adaptation of a book with the same title that I remember when it came out was also a very big deal and very scandalous because it was like transparently based on Vogue and Anna Wintour the same way that Citizen Kane was clearly about Hearst, where like everything had a very clear analog to its real life equivalent. So the book was a big fucking deal. And then the movie was really interesting because rather than being in the sort of like lusciously snipey like gossip tone, it's like a sort of <laughs> ragged dick type story of a young innocent climbing the greasy pole in New York City and becoming alienated from her, I would say, many agree with me, shitty friends and <laughs> shitty boyfriend when she starts doing well at a job she kind of inadvertently got as the assistant to the very scary editor-in-chief of Runway Magazine, Miranda Priestly. Mm, beautifully put. Eve, how, what is this movie in your imagination? Why is this one that you continue to go back to and tell us where you're at on The Devil Wears Prada? I mean, I think it's just the most fashionable hero's journey that kind of exists. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's just fun to look at. It's fun to watch. I mean, it's a movie that I've watched so many times that each time I watch it, I find a new person to like see it through their lens, you know, mm. I saw it in theaters with my stepmom, whose name is Andy, which hmm. was very exciting to me. I never saw another woman with the name Andrea shortened to Andy until this movie. Yeah, I don't know. It really speaks to when you work for a boss kind of anywhere, you know, how you hate them and then start to sympathize with them. And yeah. she makes a deal with the devil you know, <laughs> <laughs> who happens to wear Prada. Yeah. It's a great title. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, do you want to walk us through for any of the poor, poor, pitiful souls who have not seen this movie, but are listening to us? Nonetheless, we appreciate your commitment, but Sarah will fill you in on what the plot of the Devil Wears Prada is. I love how we're tacitly revealing that we know the point of the show is to have someone who's already seen the movie hear me describe what happens in the movie. You would think that people don't want that, but they do. I know I do. Yeah, totally. I've thought a lot about this, and I think it breaks down. Like, there is a whole subset of people who listen to the show who don't ever watch the movie, which I think is great. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so The Devil Wears Prada opens with that favorite tactic of directors fucking around with Anne Hathaway's hair. And we open with Anne Hathaway, who we know to be unfashionable because she has frizzy hair 
And this is a time when, to be fashionable, you had to have straight hair, which is why there's a generation of women with dry, damaged <laughs> hair today. So we watch her wake up and kiss goodbye her normal boyfriend, Adrian Grenier, <laughs> star of Entourage, just a regular line cook, and kind of step out into the street to begin her day. But she's not one of those chic girls we're seeing in a montage. She's a normal girl. She eats a bagel. She lives in Little Italy, which is very expensive. But the movie didn't dare show her, like, leaving her apartment in Astoria. Not till Julie and Julie did we get that. <laughs> so she goes to a job interview at Runway Magazine. She has been interviewing all over town because we learn via exposition later on that she got accepted to Stanford Law School and then was like, never mind, I'm going to be a journalist which shows great strength of character because preparing for the LSATs is not nothing. She interviews at this job where immediately everyone is beautiful and fashionable, but her because she's wearing sort of, I don't know, I would describe it as sort of like nondescript gap wear. She's dressed like a high school senior girl from my graduating class. Yeah, and not even a high school senior girl in a movie. Yes, exactly. Like a high school senior girl in real life who does swing choir. Someone who went to Sakopee Valley High School in South Hiram, Maine. Yeah, and who like was a really good typist. Yes, yes. Which I'm yes. sure she is. <laughs> and so she interviews, she meets Emily, the first assistant played by Emily Blunt, who's been promoted to like the main assistant to Miranda and is training her own replacement. And she meets Miranda, played by Meryl Streep, having what I believe to be the time of her fucking life, barely speaking above a whisper for the whole movie. <laughs> it's this very exciting range of quiet Meryl Streep. And so Andy gives a speech about how maybe she's not interested in fashion, but she's a hard worker and she can do it. And so they hire her. And then she meets Stanley Tucci, who throws away her corn chowder. And <laughs> I told Eve this. I worked for a fashion magazine called Trace in New York in 2007. I worked there with Kasai Richardson, who mm -hmm. was on, I think, our third episode. Mm -hmm. And I had a editor who saw me eating yogurt one morning and said, a full fat yogurt for breakfast. You might as well just have a cheeseburger. Protein creates dopamine, according to this one guy I saw on YouTube, <laughs> sir. And it's so funny because I'd lost so much weight being A, an unpaid intern, mm -hmm. and B, a person who suddenly walked 30 to 40 blocks a day. So whatever. But, you know, I came in with a lower fat yogurt. Also, what? <laughs> More to the point, a cheeseburger is a wonderful breakfast. I agree. For a now. Growing and boy. Look at me. I mean, <laughs> look at me. I'm a Greek god. <laughs> you are a Greek god. You're one of the older ones. <laughs> yes, a phage or whatever we call it, God. That's why the yogurt comes from Greece. It's made by a god. <laughs> exactly. So I, I especially appreciated the Tuch's commentary on the corn chowder. It brought me back. Mm, but you should never throw away corn chowder. I don't care Agreed. how big of an emergency you're having. I, I can't wait to talk about the food stuff in this movie. Like, I can't oh wait to God. talk about the body image stuff. But I'm I'm so glad. It's obviously it's an assault, I would say. But I'm so glad 
it exists. Mm -hmm. The level at which it happened multiple times a day in a job. Yeah. (laughs) On screen in a movie. Like, I'm glad it's like a perfect time capsule in a lot of ways. Yeah. In a totally shameless way. Yeah, I do feel like fat phobia really had a heyday in, in the 90s and noughties. Oh, I like noughties. Yeah. But I don't know. I feel like it's it's never not had a heyday. Every day is hay for fat phobia. <laughs> yes. But it is like, it's shockingly pervasive in, in all these movies that are like light entertainment of the time. And so like throughout the movie, like just intense fat phobia is just scattered, you know, just marbling the whole film. It's just kind of like leaking in subtly in like basically every scene. So Stanley Tucci, a.k.a. Nigel, but who are we kidding, (laughs) drags Andy up to the emergency run through meeting with Miranda where we get our famous box of stuff. (laughs) And basically, Andy initially fails at her job because it's really hard and Miranda's mean and she's always throwing her coat on her desk. And in the same time that this is a cultural era of unchecked fat phobia, it's also a cultural era of like people having no concept of workplace abuse, not a thought in their little heads. And it's like you feel abused. You feel abused. Maybe it's you being bad at working. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which I still think 98 percent of the country believes. But oh, that two percent. How sweet it is. Andy's friends, by the way, I'm like, every time I watch this movie, I'm amazed by how smooth it goes down. And this movie is like one of my favorite comfort foods, the Impossible Whopper, where you're like, that goes down so smooth. But there are also moments where you're like, this is a very synthetic experience I'm having. And one of them is like the scene where we meet Andy's friends. And it's like... Okay, so one of them is the black woman who's the only black woman in the entire movie, naturally, and who works in an art gallery in a capacity we're going to make a joke of not being specific, but really it's because the movie doesn't care. And her friend who's supposed to be gay, but the movie daren't say that. (laughs) And so when he's supposed to meet someone later on, we don't see the someone because this movie needs to be focus grouped into the square states. And then her boyfriend, who spent a semester on potatoes. And it's like, (laughs) my God, do you have a PhD in being a line cook? (laughs) The Mad Men gay is my only character that I don't not like in this group of friends. That that guy, because his whole thing is just to know what she's talking about. That's his whole role. That is a good role for someone. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. He's not like banal. I mean, he is banal, but like he's not banal in the way her boyfriend is. And I cannot wait to talk about the like Andy's not allowed to change friend. Tracy Toms of Wonderfalls. Yeah. <laughs> which I, which is a phenomenon I've spoken about on the show. And it just like yeah. cut me deep when I watched it happen play out here. But yeah, this group of friends is, is funny. I hate them. <laughs> I don't like them. <laughs> There's like a moment where the Mad Men gay guy is like, Python's hot right now. And it cuts to Tracy Toms giving this look that's like disturbed that he would know that. Totally. And I was like, I totally. Know. Is that a problem? <laughs> it's like, it's very sitcom acting. This was the moment also of the metrosexual. I don't know. Even- but why don't we get to see the person he's being set up with Alex? <laughs> They were like, there can only be one gay person in this movie. It has to be Stanley Tucci. 
And that's the end of this. And it's Tooch. Yeah. Yeah. And they can never speak to each other. Wouldn't that be great? Uh. <laughs> the old sex in the city trope of the two gay characters have to end up together. I know. So we don't like her friends. We don't like her friends. I guess I do like our ambiguously gay Mad Men guy, who I was also like, is that the guy from Mad Men or does he just look like the guy from Mad Men? Or are there two guys who look like that on Mad Men and they're both on Mad Men? <laughs> are there two guys who look like that on Mad Men? There are two guys on Mad Men that look just like this guy. <laughs> and one of them is this guy. One of them is this guy, but you're not off. But the other one is another guy. So anyway, I think he's like the only friend who isn't shitty to Andy about her job. I will say on this watch, I found myself understanding the friends, not totally, not fully, but in a way like, you know, Vandy works there for less than a year. And she suddenly is like losing weight and like acting differently. I can understand why you would be like a little bit concerned. Yeah. They go about it in a way that is so rotted to me. Like when they steal her phone and throw it around as if her job is like a joke. That's the fucking word. That is like unforgivable. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. Like you work in art and business and chefs and like you don't have stressful bosses your bosses are like just come in whenever just peel a few potatoes if that's cool yeah no need to work late (laughs) that's the other thing is adrian grenier is a chef he's working the weirdest hours he should know yeah he should totally know there's nobody in my life that i can imagine who has a worse work-life balance than back of the house in the kitchen yeah yeah it's just like an adrian grenier whose job never gets in his way is really pissed (laughs) off about this yeah what only one other thing to say about like the friends thing to the point that i mean on my end sorry i'm not trying to shut you down but but that eve said earlier is we do actually know that there are things in Andy's life that are be changing because of the job that are worth engaging. Like she's like bragging right. about having lost. She's gone from a six to a four intentionally in order to. Fi- but they don't bring that up. But that's right. That's not what their concern is. Their concern is like, I've known you for 16 years and this is not you. I fucking hate that shit. Yeah. Yeah. And also it's like, you guys are 22. You all just <laughs> moved to New York city from college like buckle in you're all gonna change (laughs) i've moved to new york with six people all the same group of people five of them got addicted to heroin like that's a thing to be concerned about not like that andy wants to fuck some loser yeah or that god forbid she looks good (laughs) right well at the end of the day i think lily is just jealous that andy starts to look so incredible Mm. and gets to wear couture and all that but there's this weird college trap where it's like, I knew you for these four years and thusly I know you better than anyone. And it's like your 20s are all about becoming a new person virtually every six months, you know? Great point. It's such a weird thing to me. I don't have any friends from college because I was a vastly different person back in those days. So... I never understood. And like the college sweetheart thing, you know, of course this relationship is doomed. It's like... <laughs> Ideally. Yeah, you were living on a quad <laughs> together, you know, you were like... It, I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense that it would last. Yeah. I don't know hmm. if either one of you have read the book. 
the book Lily's character is like much larger and she like develops a drinking problem. Mm. Her and Andy are roommates. She gets arrested. She gets in a car accident and is in a coma. So like the, yeah, (laughs) Lily has like a lot to do in the book. It's crazy that she's, you know, relegated to this mean side character. That poor actress must have read the book and prep for the character and was like, I have a giant (laughs) part. There's a coma. People are going to be rooting for me. And they get it. She's like, I'm just a bitch in a scene. Yeah. She's just a bitch who wants a purse. And I also love how the only thing you know about her job is that she organizes show at a gallery, which like, how did that happen? She's 22. And then she's like, I designed it, you start at the back and work your way to the front. And it was like, why? Why don't you have them start at the front? It literally doesn't make any sense. And she she even says it's brilliant. She's like, it's brilliant. It's not brilliant, Tracy. Because <laughs> if you have to walk to the back, then you'll have already seen all the photos. Anyway. <laughs> exactly. So yes, none of us like her friends. She is struggling at this job. She's like venting to them about it. The deal is like if she works there for a year, she can get any job in publishing. And Eve, help me out. What is like the hero's journey hurdle where she like trips and falls on her face and that's why she's complaining to Stanley Tucci about it? She can't charter a flight for Miranda in a huge Miami you know, storm. One of my favorite lines is it's please. It's just, I don't know, drizzling. And then the, the <laughs> and then you see the tree sideways. <laughs> it's so good. I would love to see a devil wears Prada musical. Cause just like the choreography of the way Miranda moves, I feel like mm. you could easily, you know, she's like evil Mary Poppins. She is. Yeah. She is. <laughs> Not evil, I guess, but she's like a severe Mary Poppins. Yeah. Interestingly, in the book, Mary Poppins is severe. I remember reading Mary Poppins when I was 12 and being quite startled mm. by that. This is another thing I was thinking about while watching this is that like Emily Blunt is like such an A-lister now and she's like Mary Poppins, A Quiet Place. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Young Victoria. But like this is such a broadly comedic campy role and she's so good at this. And like, does she really do this kind of thing anymore? Is the Jungle Cruise funny? Mm -hmm. The thing that's really cool about this movie is when you hear all these like behind the scenes facts, like... Emily Blunt, she wasn't scheduled to be in the background of the cerulean sweater scene. Hmm. And she was like, I think if I'm like in the back sort of running around and watching, you know, it would make sense. And she sort of she made Emily feel like so ever present, you know, yeah. in a way that really worked. Yeah, because she's like she's this really interesting version of the like the us watching Mm -hmm. where she's like us watching but responding how we should be watching if we weren't classless assholes yeah (laughs) (laughs) she also looks great the whole movie like there's a lot of horrible outfits in this but i don't think she's wearing any of them yeah her eyeshadow in the last scene where she accepts the favor is my favorite she has a lot of good eyeshadow moments (laughs) my least favorite outfit in this whole movie the one Andy is wearing when she goes to Miranda's house close to the Paris trip. And she's wearing a giant newsboy cap that looks like yes, a muffin yes. and a white dress shirt. I almost texted you about that. And a black like sweater, off the shoulder sweater. And I think like a giant chunky necklace. And you're just like, 
what a terrible time for clothes. I can't believe we all lived through that. And even when this movie, it's not like when this movie came out, I was like, wow, what a great out. Like, it's always been ugly. No one has ever... Who thought that was a good idea? And it's so funny when she realizes Miranda is there. She like pulls the hat off immediately and like fixes her hair. And I always think she's... Like just her giant bangs. Yeah. I always like picture her in her head being like, I can't believe I'm wearing this stupid fucking hat. (laughs) Just like snatching it off. Today of all days, I'm wearing the Marc Jacobs newsboy muffin hat. (laughs) So she has the like fall on her face moment. She can't get an impossible to get flight for Miranda so Miranda's punishing her and then she's complaining to Stanley Tucci and Stanley Tucci is like you're such a whiner you whine so much I'm taking you straight the runway closet and giving you a makeover that's how much I hate you his speech that he gives about like what the deal is I have problems with what the expectations are of these employees in this particular circumstance and more and we can talk about that later but I do like that someone tells her to shit or get off the pot. Yeah. I appreciate that. And then also, apparently, you have to just like refuse to get your own fancy clothes and just whine in the presence of the right person. And they'll like angrily give you the right clothes and then you don't have to buy them. He's the fairy godmother. He is the fairy godmother. Yeah. In an Anthony Marantino kind of a way. (laughs) He gives her that (laughs) horrible poncho. Oh, that poncho. It's like... It's like having acid in your eyes. Which even she, before understanding the world at all, looks at the poncho and is like, a poncho? I think that's brilliant. And we never see her wear it. She's, she's it's gross. Yeah. She's like, thank you, but I have standards. I will be wearing Chanel for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Alex, I made sure to tell you that the costume designer for this movie was Patricia Field who designed the costumes for Sex in the City. And that she, in my opinion, is the queen of like, where'd she get that? <laughs> <laughs> like, not only how did she afford this, but like, how did this little bumpkin put these things together? You believe it when Carrie does it, but where did she <laughs> learn? Anyway, so she gets her makeover. She starts coming to work. She shows up Emily when Emily's bitching about her to the future Mrs. Tom Brady. Andy gets the great line where Emily is like, are you wearing the... And Andy's like, the Chanel boots? Yeah, I am. (laughs) And she really shows them up by walking in in slow motion. She does that hair flip. It's incredible. Her hair is suddenly silky and glossy and straight. And they're just like... So beautiful. And those boots go all the way up like beneath her skirt which is incredible to me. (laughs) I love that outfit. I love that it's like kind of weird goth schoolgirl kind of. Yeah, like the place where she ends up stylistically is, I mean, like schoolgirl is sort of the right word for it, but it's Mm. it's like studious. Like it's like she's like, I'm here, I'm reporting for duty. And she does, I mean, we'll get into it later, but she does wear a ton of Chanel and that's sort of, I think of Chanel as sort of like smart fashion, you know? I feel like they're going for a little bit of a funny face oh, yeah. thing, and they kind of have to. I mean, casting Anne Hathaway and being like, I mean, look at her. Look at that ugly bitch. It's just like casting Audrey Hepburn in funny face. Right. <laughs> so she gets the makeover. She shows up Emily. Her friends 
pretty quickly start not liking it. First, they try and throw her phone around when it's ringing from Miranda. And then I'm really interested in us discussing what the conflict is here because it feels very manufactured. But basically, Nate's whole thing, her boyfriend is like, it's not that you're late. It's not that you missed my birthday. It's not that you're so busy. It's that you're not doing this with integrity. Like, you say that you're not really bought into this game, but you are. So it's like, so if she says that, then will that be good? (laughs) Yeah, I obviously, I question, I don't know, I don't like Nate at all and feel like he is, I don't know, I don't like Nate. But I do think that that criticism is correct. Like, that's the criticism that both he and fairy godmother Stanley Tucci give, which is like, what, where do you stand on this? Like, Mm -hmm. do you have a position? Like, this is too much abuse in whatever you're doing for a thing that like you don't actually have a position in outside of like if I do this I get any opportunity I want and I think that's like if I just do this one thing I get to do the next thing is a farce that so many people give their lives away in exchange for that I feel like there's like some like broad resonance to the feedback she's getting Mm. but on the other side of that I also just think that like he enjoys being annoyed with whatever she does I feel like it's a leftover argument from the book because Hmm. in the book Andy is staunchly anti-runway, anti-Miranda. She hates working there. She, like, talks shit about it all the time. And so I think, like, when movie Andy starts to be like, oh, there's actually some cool stuff here. There's this piece by Joan Didion. And then, you know, she starts to drink the Miranda Kool-Aid and starts to say things like, if Miranda were a man, nobody would have a problem with her. But they should, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Maybe we should just have problems with everyone who abuses their staff. If Miranda was a man, she'd executive produce Tarantino movies. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the two main conflicts that see us through the end of the movie are A, Doing a job for Miranda, doing an errand, Andy runs into The Mentalist, who is playing a freelance article guy who's writing she loves, whose book of essays she reviewed for her college newspaper. So she starts this flirtation with The Mentalist, and then she comes into Miranda's house to drop off the book, which is a mock-up of the magazine, which is a sacred duty, which she's being entrusted with for the first time. And... She runs into Miranda's little demonic twins who are like, just come upstairs. Emily does it all the time. So she does. And she overhears Miranda and her husband, who looks like he's been on Veep, but I don't think is. He just has male politician face. Uh, are having some kind of marital fight. Sarah, I, th- I thought literally the same exact thing. I thought that he was a character from Veep. Wait, wait. I think he might be Big's older brother. Oh. Remember Big's older brother? Who's like, where's my brother? And Carrie's like... Oh, on end just like that? Yeah. And Carrie's like... He died. He died. <laughs> <laughs> she says it. She's like so earnestly like... He he died. It's <laughs> I love that scene. I do too. Uh, oh my god, that might yeah. be Big's older brother. And fun fact, they posted a photo from and just like that season two, and it was of a staircase. And I looked at the staircase and I said, "That's Miranda Priestly's staircase. I recognize what? that staircase anywhere." No shit. Great Amazing. news. Oh, that's so great. So this home will be featured in the Sex in the City extended universe. God, I'm stoked for that. And I never say stoked. I saw a kid 
hacky sacking the other day. I'm sure that's why. <laughs> so <laughs> she catches Miranda having a fight with her husband, Big's older brother, who I'm totally willing to buy that like Miranda is therefore a character in the extended Sex in the City universe because Absolutely. she was Big's sister-in-law. That would be incredible. This feels like the very, very smartest piece of Sex in the City fan fiction. Yes. So Andy has to save her job because Miranda is basically like, I can't just fire you, but I'm going to give you an impossible task so I can fire you because I didn't want you to see me fighting with Big's brother. And so she's like, I need you to get the unpublished Harry Potter book. And through her connection with The Mentalist, she does. And so she gets to keep her job. And then she goes to the Met Gala. Is it the Met Gala? It's a gala at the Met, question mark. I mean, I think it's thinly veiled Met Gala. Yeah, because Snoop's there. (laughs) No, that's in Paris. Oh, that's in Paris. Sorry, sorry. Snoop is just everywhere. You can't have a party without Snoop Dogg. But you know who is there is Miranda's esteemed colleague, Jacqueline Follet. Oh, thank you. Yes. (laughs) Who's one of my favorite characters in this entire film. I love her, like, sort of piratical energy or something. She looks like she just played Tinkerbell. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) She's very, like, manic panic, you know? She also looks like the character from The Incredibles. Which one? Etna? Yeah, the tyrant fashionista, Etna. Etna Mode. Oh, my God. That's so true. (laughs) And she, I love that she has one line and it's just like, surprise. And then like. (laughs) (laughs) And Miranda's like, kill, kill, surprise. (laughs) There's also a part where the mentalist is like, le boyfriend non plus. And I was like. I never really got a handle on French, but I think that means the boyfriend neither. (laughs) (laughs) They're all speaking the worst French you've ever heard. I just don't believe that the mentalist has... I feel like he just like goes to restaurants and says complete gibberish and they just smile at him and pat him on his golden locks. And Andy brings this up several times where she's like, is this just bullshit that you've learned to regurgitate to women? And he's like, yeah, that's my thing. And like, that's, that is his thing. Like, he's an extremely two-dimensional dick. I do continue to like the mentalist in this, because I like how his whole (laughs) thing is like, you meet him, and he's like, I'm a real shitbag. And you're like, wow, is he like a shitbag with a heart of gold? And that's the surprise. And it's like, No, he's just, he's a shitbag and he's really conveying that he knows that to you. I do like that about this movie. Many of the people who otherwise, in the end, you'd be like, and they had a heart of gold. They don't. No. They like are maybe a little less unlikable than you thought that they were. And I love that. I do too. It's bold. I think the first few times I watched it, I really was like, I didn't realize that Christian, the mentalist, was, like, not a viable option or, like, not meant to be seen as a viable option. Like, he's written to be a dick. He's supposed to be a dick. I was like, he's cool. Like, he's fashionable. You know, like, why, you know? And then it's like, no, he was always, from the very beginning, he was very upfront about being sort of an asshole to Andy in the book, he's a nepotism baby, which... Mm. Which everybody's talking about right and now. Everybody's <laughs> talking about. I am, at this point, offline enough that I got in print an issue of New York Magazine yesterday whose cover was about the Nepo baby. And I was like, oh, I guess this is a big deal. This is a cover story. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's the first I've heard of it. 
uh, yeah, people are suddenly very interested in talking about the nepotism babies of the world. Have people not heard of the Fondas before? So that that New York magazine, Sarah, is what kicked off this conversation. And I'm so sorry to disappoint you. Mm-hmm. And there was a nuanced conversation to be had after this. But someone who took great offense to this and suggested mm-hmm. that this is all happening just because people are trying to sow division and they don't see that real work has been done is Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis. Well, and I was like, and and yes, there, everyone can talk about like how, whatever, what the casting process was like. It wasn't going to work. Whatever, all these different things. But it's like Jamie Lee Curtis. If you see a conversation happening about this sort of thing, just don't dive in. Like, don't. But no one cannot dive in anymore because it's so easy to dive in. The water True. isn't even cold. It's balmy. It's funny too because she has a quote in that article, basically being like, you know, if you have a choice between like two actresses and they're equally good but one of them's mom was in psycho you're obviously going to cast the second one Mm -hmm. so at one point she knew i feel like she's always been very vocal about her own like privileges it was sort of weird to see that she had changed her tune yes Hmm. but she loves to be a part of every conversation wow don't follow her on instagram i've learned i i (laughs) I do because i love her i will never not love jamie lee curtis i can look be i know some people just have bad takes and i get it and i just boop beyond Mm -hmm. it but she really loves to dive into everything (laughs) that's what's nice about betsy russell the thinking woman's scream queen (laughs) mrs jigsaw (laughs) (laughs) anywho anywho okay so what happens in the devil wears prada so then the main conflict in the movie is that we have established in the very beginning that emily is getting ready for this trip to paris for fashion week she's been literally dieting her hinder off there's some very nefarious like talk that certainly bolsters my theory that when women my age were growing up we weren't taught not to have eating disorders we were taught to have like a bit of an eating disorder but not enough that we had to go to the hospital because that would be disruptive (laughs) right no need for a full-blown eating disorder as long as you have disordered eating yeah just have disordered eating for your entire life, but die of something else. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> <laughs> so then Miranda decides because she feels like Emily's dropping the ball, probably because her brain is so hungry, that Andy's going to come to Paris Fashion Week with her instead. And then the movie does this very interesting thing where Andy appears to like go home and soul search and look sadly at a photo of herself and her friends from college while a sad song plays. And think about who she's become. And it's like, (laughs) Andy, you didn't kill anybody. My God. And then appear to decide that she is going to take the Paris offer because she's like believing Miranda's thing of like, it's either I go to Paris or I lose my job and I can't get another job, even though we have a good economy still. Right. Because like the New Yorker. Every time they're thinking about hiring someone, they wonder what the uh, editor of Vogue thinks of of them. I mean, like, I guess to be as fair as possible to this movie, I can see that being more true in the, like, Condé Nast world of 2006 than it is now. But even so, it's like, you can work for a newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are a bunch of jobs that you would be perfect for. The thing that always gets me about this scene is, like, does she have a specific like envelope of photos for when she's sad to like soul search and look at (laughs) and like do I need to make like a collection of photos for moments like this growing up you know what I mean 
Yeah, and you should make a playlist called like career moral dilemma mix. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I mean, yeah, it's just good to have in case of emergencies. And then what I find so odd is that the movie kind of like she seems to have made her choice. But then before she can tell Emily the news, Emily gets hit by a car. She gets fucked up. Yeah. (laughs) It's not like a a little guy. Oh, my God. And the cost and scarf casualties alone. Those are Hermes (laughs) scarves. That's like thousands of dollars just scattered around the street. (sighs) I wish I had been there. I would have gone home with scarves. Picturing Rose's mom and Titanic going, Our Hermes scarf scattered to the winds. (laughs) (laughs) And then Andy apparently goes to the hospital after, you know, Emily has had her femur set and then tells her that she's going to fuck her. And it's like, Andy, you don't have to tell her anything because clearly she can't go to Paris because she's in trouble. You can just not bring this up. Why are we doing this? Yeah, you have an out. I was baffled. I was like, why did they make her get hit by a car if she has to tell her anyway? Why? <laughs> what? It would have been the perfect, the perfect thing to do. You can't go. You just broke your leg. Like, you, of course you can't go. Yeah. So, like, Andy really kicks Emily when she's down, I guess. I guess we have this whole contrivance so that Emily can angrily give a speech once again about how Andy has sold out. And it's like, sold out what to who is what I'd like to know. But anyway. And so she goes with Miranda to Paris Fashion Week. The Mentalist is also there. We have a very exciting U2 montage, which I love. (laughs) Yes, me too. She has a dinner out with the mentalist. This is after she's had another fight with her boyfriend where they have gone on a break and apparently are not playing by Ross and Rachel rules because then she and the mentalist have a bit of baby it's cold outside and then have sex. She says no three times and somehow they still end up in bed together. Yeah. I'm not going to make the argument that I know Andy's intent in her heart and that she's not saying like no in that sort of way that women are taught to say by movies like this, where it's like it's unsexy to just want to have sex with someone. You have to like back off and play coy in some way. But I think my point is that like replicating that culture without thought now feels dated to me in a way that I actually find encouraging. And I'm not by no means am I saying that this is the, this excuses what happens here. But again, this is an instance that happens in this extended phase in Andy's life where she has no idea what the fuck she wants. This is like one of the many, many things of a series of things that she's kind of doing on what appears to be like, yeah, fuck it, autopilot. Alex, to this day, I would have sex with the mentalist, you know, and I mean, just look at him. Almost 100 percent of everything I did at Andy's age was I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. All right. No, there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with sleeping with the mentalist. If that's what you want. <laughs> if you're looking for one takeaway from this episode, that's the one. There's that's nothing the one. wrong with Have sleeping with, with the, the mentalist. mentalist. Sleep with the mentalist. It'll be worth it. And you'll find out a secret. You'll find out a secret that could save your job or your boss's job. She has also learned in the same scene in which she reveals that she has gone down from a size six to a size four, which is a whammy because there hasn't been anything so far about Andy dieting. And then we're like, oh, shit, Andy, that's not good. You shouldn't lose weight for your job. She learns that Nigel is 
What job is he getting at French Runway? He's becoming the creative director of James Holt, who is a designer. Oh, of who's James Holt. Becoming a global brand. Right. So going from like a an indie designer to like a big brand. And we've seen him throughout and he did the Obi belt, which I personally love. So Andy learns in the morning at The Mentalists. And by the way, when this movie came out, I was in the habit of reading reviews on this like parent common sense Christian conservative like (laughs) movie moral rating website and I still remember it mentioning that the mentalist comes out of the shower in a low slung towel (laughs) (laughs) and to be fair he does and so she's found like a mock-up where she's like wait a minute you're doing a hostile takeover of runway with Jacqueline Follet and he's like bon 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 And so she rushes off to try and warn Miranda. She doesn't have time. And then she realizes that Miranda has already managed the entire thing. And she's giving Nigel's job to Jacqueline and staying on top. And then in the car after the conference, Andy's like, how could you do that to Nigel? And Miranda's like, whatever, babe, you got to do what you got to do. Everyone wants to be us. I see myself in you. (laughs) And so Andy jumps out of the car and throws her sidekick in a fountain (laughs) and then has to somehow find a flight home. I've never understood how she did that. People were hardier before the iPhone. With no phone. She doesn't know how public transit works. How does she know how to get to the airport? In 2002, I want it to be known that I walked into an airport and convinced them to just give me another ticket because I didn't like where I landed. Like, I can't can't in retrospect believe that it happened. I can't either. It was just a different time. (laughs) And you were a razzle-dazzle guy. (laughs) And so she throws her phone in a fountain, somehow teleports back to New York, meets up with Adrian Grenier, They decide to, like, make a go of it, even though he's moving to Boston, which gross. (laughs) This is, I mean, one of my only issues with this movie is that scene, because it's like she theoretically gets the job at the the New Yorker-esque magazine. And then it's like implied that she's also going to go to Boston. This relationship is going to last for like seven weekends. And then she's going to realize she hates Boston. Many of us have been there where you go through the real breakup and then uh, you're like, maybe we were rash. Let's go through an even worse version of the relationship we had beforehand. Yeah. And then let's go through a exactly right timing, a seven week peter out. Let's do that. Let's not kill the fish. Let's let the fish slowly (laughs) suffocate. Fish love that. There is a not enough Jarlsberg in the world to save that relationship, I think. No. <laughs> also, fucking, everyone knows Jarlsberg. This is not an exciting cheese for you to name check. Do better. <laughs> he's just, he's that bland. That's like $8 worth of Jarlsberg. They have it at Costco in big wheels. They sure do. <laughs> okay, she decides to stay with her boyfriend who's moving to Boston. She gets a job in New York. The guy who interviews her is like, what the hell kind of a blip is that? You worked at Runway for less than a year. And for some reason, she doesn't say my boss was abusive and I threw my sidekick in a fountain. <laughs> and he's like, well, I called Miranda and she gave you a great recommendation. So you're hired because every... <laughs> Everyone working in media in New York does what Miranda Priestly says. And then in our iconic closing scene, Miranda is in her town car or limo or whatever and sees Andy walking down the street. 
and they make eye contact and have a moment and Miranda smiles and she looks away and then she realizes they're not moving and she says, go. The end. That's the movie. I love it. It's I love it the same way I love Sex in the City. For everything I think is perfect, there's another thing I want to make fun of for an hour. It makes me so happy. Eve, where should we go? I should say, so this film was nominated for an Oscar for costume design, hmm. which people forget, but it's true. And hmm. it was up against four other films. None of them were contemporary. All of them were big, big costume films. I think it's like Marie Antoinette, and like dream girls and like <laughs> two other ones that I can't remember. But the contemporary costume is always overlooked at the Oscars. But, yeah. you know, Pat Field, what she does so well is like, if you looked at any outfit in this or in Sex in the City, you would know which character was going to wear it. You know, because she's not like, I mean, mm, I don't really know yeah. too much about her. I know she was born in New York City. I know she's... Greek, but I think she kind of came up in like the punk New York downtown scene, maybe like a Betsy Johnson or something like that, you know? And so I think her approach to clothing has always been so spot on. I mean, it just, it tells you so much about the character that you immediately know what's going on. And like, there's little subtle things like the way that Anne Hathaway is dressed pre-makeover, it's not like she's wearing a horrible outfit, you know, it's actually very normal. But the way that everything fits kind of poorly, we immediately know, like, this girl doesn't really understand right. how she can be using clothing. I mean, as a writer, you can use clothing to look intelligent or, you know, like you own the room or, you know, all of these things. And she's not using this skill. You know, she hasn't figured this skill out. And then at the very end of the film, you know, she's lost the access to the runway closet. So she's not wearing Chanel. She's probably wearing stuff that, you know, you could get in a thrift store. But we've like seen how she's sort of like figured out how to make herself look and, you know, how to represent that she is, you know, a smart, capable young woman. And I just, I think Pat Field is like such a genius. I, I could talk about her forever. I feel like this movie does not know what it thinks about fashion or like that it changes its mind a few times. Yeah. This is a movie that I cannot sort its political or social ideology or commentary because like I can't tell where it lands at the end, if that even matters necessarily, because like, does your opinion matter about this force that's going to exist no matter what? Or is it a matter of figuring out what your place is in it, which is what we're dealing with with Andy's journey? But no, I kind of in a way appreciated how muddy it was with regard to where it was going to land because they're like, there's pluses and minuses. The minuses are big. The contributions to art and culture are extremely and extraordinarily important and undeniable. They do apply to us whether or not we think we're engaging it willingly. If we do want to engage willingly, there's a lot to engage, but there's no tidy message regarding that. And Eve, you are a friend who I contact anytime I have a question about fashion in, in media. That's how much I know that this is sort of a part of your life. So do you, do you have any sense of where this movie lands to Sarah's point? I mean, I think I, it's interesting that you say that because this rewatch was one of the first times where like, there's this mic drop moment, you know, where she says, 
you think that you're above this because you're wearing this lumpy blue sweater, mm-hmm. that whole scene about the, the sweater. And it was one of the first times where I watched it and I was like, so wait, what is she saying here? <laughs> right? <laughs> Everyone acts like it's this mic drop. And I guess, you know, distilled down, she's saying like, you're a part of this, even if you don't think you are, because we chose that Mm -hmm. color, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. The scene that I think is sort of like the thesis statement is when Nigel is talking about the magazine and he's like, it's not just a magazine, it's art. You know, you, you live your life in art. Maybe it's just tie dye, but maybe it's couture. And I I don't know that that necessarily, like, says what this film thinks about fashion. I know what I think about fashion. You know, you kind of have to figure out your relationship to it almost every day or, you know, every few weeks. Yeah. Well, like, fashion as it exists in this movie is it's like, I mean, it is because the fashion we are engaging in particular is it's like just saying, like, capitalism. It's like, I don't like capitalism. Well, that's fine. How are you going to engage it? Right. Because it's there we're in this building there's money like how what is the action and the intention behind your dislike or is there any or what is there and and we're walking with andy through a journey of going from just having a very convenient and non-committal take about a thing to like actually maybe putting together in the way that my development of takes has always gone, which is up and down, messily, you know, intentionally, unintentionally, like, and then you sort of land somewhere eventually. I mean, so like, okay, so here are the messages we get about fashion. We get the blue sweater speech, which we all love. It's great. It's always been great. Meryl Streep is like a big part of why this movie works so well, I think. She's just like... Oh my God, like just watching her do anything in this is just the greatest joy. And it's like watching Nadia Komenich do something that's very easy for her. Hmm. You know, you just get the sense that she's just like having a walk in the park. But yeah, that speech is like, it's not a fashion good speech. It's a fashion unavoidable speech. Right. I don't know. Like, I feel like that speech has gotten a place in the culture that like suggests that it's like, ooh, she just burned Andy. Right, but like, how? But really, it's like she kind of burned herself as well, mostly. But I think like Miranda represents, and this is like a thing I think a lot of people have to reconcile in one way or another, is like Miranda represents power mm. and your relationship to power and your what you are willing to do or not do in order to gain power. Yeah. And Tooch represents an appreciation for the art. Yeah. And he has to, as we saw, make Faustian bargains. He has to give things up that he thinks he's ultimately going to get that he's not going to get. We have Mm -hmm. that part where he's like, she'll pay me back eventually. And then Andy's like, are you sure? And he's like, all I have is hope, which Mm -hmm. if you are a believer in lover and art, that is all you have. Yeah. <laughs> up against power. Miranda represents the power within the industry and has right. an appreciation for these things. But at the end of the day, she's just a kingmaker. Mm-hmm. Everyone around, not everyone around her, I feel like Tooch the most is the one who actually like believes in the, the art. Right. And then we have his speech, which is fashion is art you can wear. Something I always found confusing, like growing up with this movie is like, yeah, it's art you can wear, but that means that it's art that you can wear. So it's at art prices. And like that didn't really feel to me like it bridged the gap of like fashion is not just these couture houses, but it's like using clothing expressively and as a means of empowerment, however Mm. you can. Right. Mm -hmm. 
And that's always been in the Pat Field cinematic universe. <laughs> that has always been the thing that Sex in the City did so well because Carrie right. would be wearing $400 shoes and a $7 dress and she wore a lot of vintage. You know, that high-low feels really accessible. Yeah. And this film, because it's at a fashion magazine and because they have all of the clothes in, you know, the closet... There isn't really any low, you know, like it's all high, high, right. high yeah. end. So it's not very accessible. Right. And it feels less tasty than the the Sex and the City looks. And um, I listened to the And Just Like That podcast, which is hosted by Michael Patrick King and various of the show's writers. And like one of the things that I feel like becomes apparent listening to him is how much Sex and the City is a function of like really like a love of old Hollywood and old Hollywood musicals. And for a show that like doesn't have characters do musical stuff ever, it actually really does because they like mm -hmm. the way clothes work in that show. It's like, this is how Carrie is feeling. Like we're seeing her interior life through costumes this way. And there's something, I don't know. I hate criticism. That's like the clothes are so unrealistic. It's like, yeah. Of course they are. Do I want to watch TV shows where people dress like the people I know? Yeah, no. No. <laughs> well, it's it's a fairy tale, you know, and there's actually, Pat Field said about Devil Wears Prada, I'm here to give you a, a fairy tale. And if you want a documentary, you can go watch the History Channel. Yeah. In the case <laughs> of the Devil Wears Prada, because they have this like out, you know, like if you watch something like not to pit pieces against each other, but Emily in Paris is a big one that people didn't understand the the look of and the clothing mm -hmm. because this is a young girl. How does she have access to this stuff? But they have an out in the Devil Wears Prada where it's like they have the closet and, you know, I don't really know what Nigel's position is. He's either like a Grace Coddington mm. or like an Andre Leon mm. Talley, I would say. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of my favorite things about this movie is the Vogue montage. Oh, my God. The Madonna mm. Vogue montage, where she's changing outfits rapidly. That little bun. Oh, that's like full Audrey Hepburn cosplay that day. What's great about that scene for me is, theoretically, Nigel has given her this, you know, a key to the closet or whatever. In that montage, she goes through all these different vibes like she has this like knit cap that's sort of like the bohemian look and then she has that beautiful green coat which is sort of you know audrey hepburn in i think charade and then she has the black trench she has the all white sort of mod outfit and so to me it's like you're seeing a woman who didn't think she could or should participate in fashion. You're seeing her participate. And through this montage, she sort of arrives at a place where she spends kind of the rest of the movie. So she wears like mostly Chanel. Like I said earlier, it's like she wears this stuff that is sort of like studious, smart. Maybe she picked up some stuff from Miranda, you know, like lots of black and white, you know. And that to me is like, you never get that in a makeover montage because you always just right. get like, girl go from ugly to pretty in yeah. an hour, you know? Right. In right. this case, you're seeing a girl kind of find herself. And like, I think it's so brilliant that she, to me, she really does. Yeah, it's true. And I, that make, it never occurred to me how passive the makeover yes. kind of 
thing is presented as and the example I always think of is Miss Congeniality where it's like you know the joke is that she's being rolled out like the new Boeing but like that it, you know she's an object who's being worked on right I think that there are two different things being said well there are many different things being said about fashion by way of like the text of the script of the movie and then the text of like what is being shown on screen in the movie mm-hmm. we see fashion working both as like an oppressive force and a liberating force which is like all forces hmm yeah I wish the movie knew that it knew that <laughs> it might not know that <laughs> I don't think it does. And then the third instance that we have is Nate. I think both Lily and Nate saying that Andy sold her soul for Louboutins or whatever. And it's like, so fashion is, here are the three things fashion is. It's an inescapable force that you will only become more deeply mired in by trying to escape. Slay. So it's like quicksand. (laughs) We have B, fashion is art you can wear. And it will turn you into someone who can like show up that bitch who hired you. And it's like this magical empowering force. And C, it will cause you to sell your soul in a Faustian bargain and become someone your stupid friends don't recognize or like. What did Andy do that was so bad? They're acting like it's Wall Street. And it's like, she's just working long hours. That's what you do at this age. She just gave them all extremely lovely gifts just gave them all and they were fucking assholes about the phone thing and she responded accordingly which was like this happens to be a job that i care about this sucks that you guys did this and they're like you've changed you've changed it's funny because like it's like they're doing the like sissy spacek and jfk Bo Bridges and Norma Ray thing of like, you have this very important job that I don't understand and I'm creating conflict in this stupid script by expecting more than you or the audience knows you can possibly give because what you're doing is so important. But like, I feel like what this movie is saying is like, we all know that her job is stupid, right? And it's like, well, is it? Because this is like a good track to what she wants. You do have to acquire power by eating shit for a while. Yeah. They're so bad that Andy, who I don't even like very much, <laughs> I am rooting for against them. <laughs> I think, though, that the book, you know, the book is written to be like a salacious mm-hmm. gossip piece. And it's, you know, as we know, it's sort of about Anna Wintour. We know that the author, Lauren, worked at Vogue. And her point of view, as I like in the book, Andy is even more angry. You know, when she quits Miranda, she says, fuck you, Miranda, and like, like walks out and like throws her phone and never understands the point of the job. And I think I feel like when the movie was made and Meryl Streep signed on, The lore is that she had a lot of say in, like, the Miranda character. So she really kind of humanized her. And they added the scene with the divorce where she's Mm -hmm. got no makeup on. They added that she is this sort of weakness for her children. Not weakness, (laughs) but, you know, that she loves her children. (laughs) Classic humanization mood. My girls. Right, right. And, like, I love that part where she answers the phone and she's like, hello. Bobsy. I think it's so it's like the only time she speaks above a whisper is yeah. when she answers the phone to her daughter. 
And I just want to talk about wigs again because the Miranda Priestly wig is one of the greatest wigs in cinema history. I love it. It's got to be like a $25,000 to $30,000 wig. It's all like probably hand ventilated. It looks incredible on screen. The filmmakers were not into her having white hair. And then the story is that Meryl put the wig on, went into a production meeting as Miranda Priestly, wearing the wig and an outfit and sat at the head of the table and was fully in character. And they were like, oh yes, this works. We should do this. It's just beautiful. It is. I mean, I do feel like this wig is so important and I would love to know like what you think it's doing for this performance, but also like what does hand ventilated mean? Does that, I'm going to guess what it means. I know I'll be <laughs> off, but does it mean that they have to hand punch tiny holes in it so your scalp doesn't get all sweaty? <laughs> no, that is what it sounds like, actually. What, uh, when you make like a wig for film mm-hmm. or even for life, you generally make it on uh, lace mm-hmm. and it's sort of like a net and every hair is individually put into a little hole on the net and tied every single hair. And a lot of the time there'll be like lace front wigs and it's just the front is lace. So it looks like you have, you know, a hairline, but I mean, Meryl Streep is not going to put a bad rug on her head. (laughs) And I mean, I've seen like probably 10 to $15,000 wigs at work here and there, and they're absolutely stunning and they look incredible on the people. I mean, I think it changes everything. It takes the Anna Wintour. I mean, you can't take Anna Wintour out of this, but Anna Wintour has an iconic hairstyle. And I feel like they took the Anna Wintour out as much as they could. And they said like, this is Mm. a new person, you know, we're getting away from the source material and we're creating Like that and the never speaking above a whisper thing makes Uh Miranda, to me, the most powerful person in any room she's in. Again, I'm not I'm kind of not surprised that the movie doesn't know where it's landing on fashion, because I do think like at the end of the movie, it's about work and it's about power at work and how we assume power positions Mm. and what our relationship is to it. Like you are going to work in one way or another. If you have any agency, what is your relationship to that work going to be? And what is your relationship to your commitment? What is your relationship to power? Where do you want to land on it? And the thing that we haven't talked about that was extremely relatable, not just in that context, but in the like being a human being context is we get this piece where Andy has to bring the book to Miranda's house and she sees Miranda's husband berate her. And so, first of all, it's shocking, obviously, because this is not a character we imagine in any situation where that happens. It's obviously just a, it's a man kind of being shitty or being shitty to her because of how the whatever that we can talk about the specifics of that. But the resonant piece of that is Miranda is seen in a way that she does not choose to project herself outside of work by Andy and then wants to destroy her. And then makes her throw away that steak, that beauty. I've been thinking about that (laughs) That steak steak. for 17 Mm. years. You've seen me, now you must die is, I feel like, an extremely human response in many, many ways. But I I do think what I found spoke to me about that scene in particular is again, like it's a matter, this all is a matter of power in all as much of it being a matter of power. It's a matter of perception of that power as well. Mm -hmm. And Andy has had the 
peek behind the curtain that almost nobody ever gets to see. Do you guys think, because another thing that I always think when I watch this movie is Miranda says, what I did to Nigel, Mm -hmm. you did to Emily. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, I I don't agree with that. I don't either. (laughs) You know, Miranda took away an opportunity, like a life-changing opportunity from Nigel to save her own job. Mm-hmm. You know, Andy didn't really have a choice. I mean, Miranda did kind of threaten her. But also Emily got hit by a car. Like the movie has made all of this meaningless because it's like, and then Emily got hit by a car. And it's like, well, then right. Andy didn't do anything. That cab driver should have braked is the issue. Right. Nigel does not get hit by a car. <laughs> I mean, I feel like there was some kind of like splitting the difference writer's room decision where they were like, Andy won't be likable enough if she takes the job, but also we have to have the little speech so she will take the job, but also she'll have no other... Like, she's just deprived of a meaningful choice, and then the movie acts as if she has one, which is so weird to me. Yeah, I agree. Can I want to ask, because we've been talking so much about the movie's position, but we, Eve, we haven't asked yours. How did you become drawn to fashion, and why is it something that remains meaningful to you? I don't know. I've, I sort of found myself through clothing. I'm a trans woman and I think on some level I built myself from the outside in using fabrics and silhouettes and things that I was drawn to. And it is such a capitalistic venture, right? There's a lot of class to it and a lot of structures that I think are probably, you know, very problematic. But as an actor, costuming has always been the most important part of character building because, you know, much more than any room the character walks in, it's like they dress themselves that morning and they are telling you who they are by what they put on their body. While that's not always the case in real life, I just think it's such a fun opportunity. Your outfit is your inner monologue. <laughs> and where is and Sorry that this is such an elementary question, Eve, but you're, you know, you're talking to me. So like Sarah, I would say, is a person who I don't think of is extremely concerned with fashion. Right. But when Sarah got these glasses that she's wearing now, I was like, oh, like this is you. Like this is so you. Mm-hmm. This is perfect. I feel like it expresses not just like who you are, but like who you are projecting. Like it just makes sense. Right. Mm-hmm. That's Sarah's style, right? Like, where does that intersect with fashion? School me. You know, fashion is an industry and Mm. style is individual. Mm. Mm. And a style is something that you could do with or without high fashion pieces, Mm -hmm. you know? True. Mm -hmm. Like, Carrie Bradshaw is both stylish and fashionable, but in the early seasons, I would say she's probably just stylish before they were getting all of those couture pieces. Right. And then she ascends. She ascends. I mean, I just want to put in that, like, watching this movie and kind of watching it sort of at least once every couple of years since I was 18 has been this interesting yardstick for kind of keeping track of my relationship to fashion and sort of performing womanhood in public and how I was really raised in this ethos. And this has to do with family and with growing up in Portland and with I don't know, whatever various influences are in my life and also what I took from them. But like, I really grew up with this mentality that I think was kind of being pushed as synonymous with feminism, especially when I was a tween that like, 
clothes and makeup and like glitter and heels and like wanting to feel cute are like ultimately stupid and vapid. And that if you want to like be a like serious and be feminist, you need to like not give a shit about what you look like. And like, I don't think, you know, I'm not accusing people of telling me that, but I got that. And then I realized that people had been kind of acting like they all thought that, but then like running home and doing skincare every night or like <laughs> learning how to do makeup behind my back. And it's like, well, God, I like took that seriously and I didn't learn how to do anything. And, you know, part of that is that I'm lazy, but <laughs> there is this double bind that I feel I've kind of been very conscious of growing up of like, the whole thing is like that you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And in a weird way, like abstaining from the whole game, like is both somehow the only correct option and the worst thing you can do. Mm -hmm. And only recently, and I think this does have to do with like aging into actual adult womanhood, which Alex, I was just joking to you that like barbarian shows America what it's truly afraid of a 40 year old woman, mm -hmm. the greatest monster of all. <laughs> and just that like, as you feel yourself being less scrutinized, I do think that like a feeling of greater freedom opens up to determine what you want to look like. And I do kind of feel like that's why the, where, you know, Carrie, I'm sure has always looked great, but I love that the Carrie years, like as we first meet her, like as she's advancing into her thirties, and wearing, I would say, progressively crazier shit. And I do feel like there's a relationship there. <laughs> yeah, I think that, like, you know, again, as a trans woman, like, beauty and not so much fashion, but certainly, like, you know, makeup and all that stuff, it became, like, a survival tactic for me. And it took a lot of the fun out of it when it felt like it was what was keeping me safe or whatever. And that's obviously, you know, a whole conversation. But I think when I allowed like fashion to be fun again, it was the most empowering thing for me. You know, when I stopped sort of trying to make it about how I was perceived and made it about how I was feeling and, you know, how, what I wanted to express, I went through a big phase of like, it's unfeminist to dress like a bimbo or to, you know, get all dolled up or whatever. But I don't know, it makes me happy. So I'm just going to keep doing it. <laughs> right. It's like unfeminist to be an unhappy woman, really. Yeah, it's probably exactly. the answer. <laughs> yeah. Like, don't be unhappy on purpose. <laughs> right, right. Or like, don't be unhappy because you think other people are going to think you're unintelligent or, you know, frivolous or whatever. Yeah. And it feels like that's what in so many ways Andy's journey is speaking to, which is like you can't withdraw from any of these things entirely. And so it's a matter of identifying and embracing your relationship with whatever it's going to be and owning that. I think for better or worse, Andy, like is the embodiment of the millennial woman. Yes. And there is no answer <laughs> for how and before the economy even got tanked. But like for Andy, there is no correct thing to do because there is no correct thing to do in reality. And it like it drives me up the wall that when she's like having her like reconciliation with Adrian Grenier, he's like, so you have a job interview and you're wearing that. It's like, oh, my yeah. God, can she live? Like, can we not <laughs> find like, is there anything she can wear that's correct to you? Will anybody like not make a comment about this woman's appearance just once, <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> and I do love that look because it is. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but totally. She's like she's using the skills she's learned on tools that are available for her. And she's like foraging mm -hmm. in the city for good clothes. It's very exciting. I mean, I like to think, you know, you can access your style with limited tools. You don't need the runway closet, you know. Right. There is a father in this movie, and that father is Richard Sachs, who happens to be Andy's father, who, in your view, is the daddy of The Devil Wears Prada. Eve, I feel like this is a question you've been waiting to be asked your entire life. <laughs> and you would be so correct about that. Thank you. Thank you for <laughs> finally asking. Um, I think that the true daddy is Nigel mm. because he makes a comment about Andy's weight <laughs> and ultimately because because he he tries to help her and I feel like he takes care of his own business in a way. We don't really get that much about his personal life. There are good daddies and bad daddies, of course, but I think a good daddy kind of knows when to make sacrifices. And it seems like Nigel is able to do that for the good of the magazine, you know? Right. Like he actually is the only one we see who like loves something bigger than himself. Yeah, definitely. I don't think this in a bigger way uh, with regard to the movie. This isn't like the number one daddy, but I do want to speak to Doug. I just want to give Doug a nod. Doug is our Mad Men gay mm. in this movie. And um, at least among the friends, he's the only one I'd like to spend any time with mm -hmm. because he doesn't he doesn't say anything shitty to Andy. He doesn't discourage her from doing what she's doing. And he clearly is very well versed in this arena and doesn't treat it like absolute crazy garbage to know stuff about like her friend and her boyfriend does so i just want to say doug we see you we appreciate you maybe it would have been nice to know one or two other things about you like what your future date was going to be honestly doug should get andy's job totally he yes like he would do great he's on top totally. of it and he's allowed to care about work because he's a man which is a point this movie sort of makes but in the least convincing way possible you're not doing well in your job unless your personal life is in shambles we were told by nigel mm -hmm. sarah where's where are you landing okay so when i was in college i subscribed to film comment for which i welcome everyone's ridicule <laughs> and they had a feature every month where someone working in film would name their 10 guilty pleasures mm -hmm. and then someone else recommended the devil wears prada saying like, this movie is great if you watch it as a movie about a genius who's being constantly undermined by her useless millennial <laughs> lackeys. And I really think that's true. And I love it. <laughs> I do feel like Miranda is like, yeah, she's a shitty boss. She's hard to work for. She gives some impossible tasks. She's not the greatest communicator. It's hard to expect someone who just started in this industry to know what the pony means. I think it took me like, 15 years to make an educated guess that she means like a pony skin pattern. Is that right? I would assume so. But I'm going to say Emily Blunt Ooh. really at the end of the day, because like this could have been like a totally forgettable role. And she's so mm. fucking good. Every time she's on screen, I love her so much. I just like looked her up and was reading her other movies. And she was like 22 or 23 when she made this, which is like, I think very young to have such a command of body yourself as an instrument of comedy, but like everything she does, she does funny. I don't know. And this was, you know, the movie that like 
introduced her to all of us and it has been smooth sailing ever since. And I want her to do more comedy again. Make your husband write a funny movie for you, Emily. If anyone who knows me knows I love a good bit of face acting. Mm -hmm. And her response to the favor at the end of the movie, which is Andy asking if Emily will take the clothes that she got in Paris off of her hands because she doesn't have appropriate storage because that's the only way a prideful Emily would be able to accept that sort of thing. Her response of joy very slightly sneaking through her dour face is masterful. So British. I want to close with an anecdote that I heard yesterday on the And Just Like That podcast. So I'm going to do my impression of Michael Patrick's King impression of Patricia (laughs) Field. So, Alex. Yes. The last two episodes of Sex and the City are a two-parter called An American in Paris, parts un and deux. Okay. And Carrie goes to Paris with her lover at the time and... I won't tell you any more about it because it's a great journey and you're going to get to go on it someday. But as part of her big sort of extravagant Paris experience, she wears this beautiful, I forget the designer, I think maybe Versace, the sort of like dove gray, like giant ball gown with like endless layers of skirts. Mm. It's like a famous piece in the Sex and the City extended universe wardrobe. And so Michael Patrick King told this story where like they were getting ready to do these episodes. He went in to see Patricia Field about a piece. She was like, it's fabulous. And it wants to go to Paris. (laughs) And he was like, Carrie doesn't have luggage this size. We don't see her carrying anything that could hold this dress. Like, no, like how can how can she get it there? We can't use this dress. And Patricia Field was like, all I'm saying is it's fabulous and it wants to go to Paris. (laughs) And so they took it to Paris. There are more important things than what fits in Carrie's luggage, which I can't believe he had been doing the show for six years and needed to realize that again. And it's so beautiful. But that's what life is like. That is exactly what life is like. It's relearning that lesson, ideally at least once a year. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Eve Lindley for joining us. Don't forget about that bonus episode of You're Wrong About that features a conversation with Eve about uh, the evolving public opinion of Anne Hathaway and how that has changed and sweetened over time and why that has been the case. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. Thank you to Fresh Lush for providing the beats that make the show sound so sweet. Thank you for listening to the episode. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. We appreciate you, uh, and I hope that you enjoy your bonus episodes. And that's it. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for being here, everyone. You, my friend, are good.